All right. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, please? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. The message is entitled, What About Election? Uh, Paul has expressed his gratitude to the Father for the benefit of salvation in verse 3. He gives us the source of salvation, the sufficiency of salvation, and the sphere of salvation. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in the process of salvation. The Father is seen in verse 3 through 6, the Son in 7 through 12, and the Holy Spirit 13 through 14. Each section concludes with the praise to the glory of God alone, verse 6, 12, and 14. God alone saves, nobody else. Now, verse 3 through 14 is one complete sentence in the Greek. Paul indicated that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. So now he begins to indicate some of the blessings. We have been called and blessed with every spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. We're not looking for an earthly kingdom, ladies and gentlemen. The part of Christianity that says that you can nab it and grab it, confess it, and it's yours. If you don't make negative confessions, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy because you're a king's kid. That is a distortion of scripture. God can heal you. God can bless you and all that. But our blessings are spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. It's the Israel who's looking for an earthly kingdom, the material things. You understand? There's a big difference. But just alone being saved and you're honest and you work hard, you're going to be better off. The minute you're born again, you're financially ahead 30 or 40 percent because you're not spending money on stupid things. Simple. All right. So there's a lot of twisting and distorting of the scriptures. So we need to study carefully what the Bible teaches. Let's look at the first blessing here, the proclamation of election, which is marked by three truths. Let me read verse 4. He says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so the proclamation of election is marked by three truths. First, the one who did the choosing. The first part of four. Second, the time of the choosing comes next. And thirdly, the purpose of the choosing. Now, we're going to be touching a little bit on Calvinism. You say, well, Cal what? They're not Calvin Klein, but it's Calvinism, okay? It's a, it's a type of theology that teaches that God chose only a few to be saved, and he damned the rest of the world. And if he damned you, you cannot be saved, you cannot believe or nothing. So God predestined you to hell without ever giving you a chance. We reject that doctrine completely. We've done a whole series on it. I would encourage you to get it online. Get on there. You, can, you don't have to buy it. Just listen to it, whatever. You need to understand it. It's death to a church. It divides people. It destroys people. Okay? The Bible does not teach that. And I'm going to touch on some of these things. But it's very important you understand what salvation is about. And so, let's begin here with the first point. The one who did the choosing. Look at verse 4 there. Uh, Paul revealed that the Father is the one who chose us, just as he chose us. This is indicated by the personal pronouns, emphatic, he, the Father. Remember, he's the source of salvation. The Father blesses with every spiritual blessing, verse 3, in Christ Jesus. The word choose simply means to pick out. The tense is the indicative errors. The middle voice always indicates that he did it for himself and by himself. 
No one else. God initiates, we respond. The word is found 21 times in the New Testament. And three times it is used of choosing the 12 apostles in John 6.70, John 13.18, and John 15.16. Now, notice Paul revealed the Father chose us sovereignly. The sovereignty of God is the right to do as he pleases with his creation. Sovereignty is defined this way. Listen carefully. He does as he wills, when he wills, to who he wills, as often as he wills, as many times as he wills. But he never violates your will. Okay? Think with me. Calvinist says, God condemns you to hell without a chance. Well, if God is sovereign, and they say, well, because God is sovereign. That's not an explanation. God is the epitome of holiness. Absolute good, kind, loving. If he condemns you to hell without ever giving you a chance, is he good? Of course not. He has to be unjust. So God's sovereignty never violates your free will. You had a free will before you were saved, or you have a free will after you're saved. Did the angel bus pick you up this morning for you to come to church? You chose to come, right? Every day you get to choose whether you sin or you don't sin, right? Even though you're saved, right? I wish I was a robot. Maybe it'd be easier. But then how would God know my love? Interesting. Now, the sovereignty of God is manifested in perfect wisdom. Resulting from all the attributes of God. They're perfect. All of his attributes are God. Now, when you're dealing with Calvinism, where they're telling you that God chose only a few and he condemned the rest... Okay, yeah, don't don't stack scriptures because I can pr- prove either case from each side. You have to run it through the attributes of God. That's how you destroy Calvinism. Okay, not by stacking scripture, not by competing. All right, God's sovereignty makes all the right decisions in perfect justice, having the benefit of man in mind. God is in the business of saving lost sinners. I presume you qualify. And God doesn't get any benefit from us. Okay. If he can get something from me, it's a headache. All right? I don't add anything to God. I'm the one that gets the benefit. The sovereignty of God, like foreknowledge, never violates the free will of man. It is the major theme that deals with Israel and the Gentiles in Romans chapter 9. You remember he deals with Esau and Jacob in Romans 8, 11 through 16? Calvinists say that God is talking about individual salvation. Jacob and Esau? That is deception. The context is national salvation. Israel, Jacob is the nation of Israel. Esau is the nation of Edom. There's not individual salvation there, and they know it. Context is the most important thing, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not here for you to depend upon me. I'm here to teach you how to study the Bible so you don't have to depend upon me, so you can depend upon God. You understand? All right? Context is the most important thing. You got a triangle, context, sovereign, uh, the, the culture, and language. Those are the three things. This big word, uh, biblical interpretation, uh, the uh, the um, uh, of the science of interpretation. Okay, hermeneutics. And you need to understand first what it meant to those days, so that way I can make an application to this day. But I got to find out what it meant to them. Now we live in a world. Very often does it happen like it has today, that words have changed in our own generation. Usually it takes. Once a generation is gone. When I grew up in the 60s, thongs were flip-flops. All right? 
Now, if you dig up the archaeologist and you dig up a letter in the 60s and it says, uh, and you read it says, you know, I forgot my thongs. I'm going to go get them in the car. I'll be right back. You've got to know what that word meant in the 60s. If you dig up a letter in the 2000s, it's, the song is different. <laughs> so to get the right interpretation, you've got to know how that word was used then, right? Very simple example, all right? And people don't study the word, so they make wrong interpretation. If you have wrong interpretation, you're going to make wrong application. Very simple, all right? Now, he expressed the free will of Pharaoh in Romans 8 again. Pharaoh rejected the witness and the miracles of God, the orders of God. So he hardened his heart. So God said, okay, I'll respect your will. I'll strengthen your heart. You want to reject me? I'll strengthen you in that. Free will. He illustrates it through the powder and the clay. Seeing God is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, possessing foreknowledge, the epitome of perfect wisdom. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's immutable. Should we worry about the sovereignty of God that is going to be unjust? Of course not. Now, you and I can make mistakes. God makes no mistakes. He doesn't have to learn anything. Wow. Now, notice Paul revealed the Father chose us in relationship to the person of Jesus Christ. He's a key. In him, in him refers to the union of you and I with Christ Jesus. It's mentioned uh, six times. Um, seven times in various forms in the first three verses. In him, we have redemption, one seven. In him, those in heaven and earth will be gathered in him in Ephesians one ten in the rapture. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, chapter 1, verse 11. In him, we trusted after hearing the gospel of truth in one thirteen. In him, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith, Ephesians 3.12. So those chosen in him is synonymous with in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're lost. You're religious or you're an atheist or you're an agnostic, ignoramus. All right? One of those. You must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of God. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than walking to a garage makes you a car. Okay? You must be born again, turn from your sin, and live for Jesus Christ and abide in Him. That's what the Bible teaches. God's divine election and man's free will has been explained as two parallel lines that we don't know how they cross, but when we get to heaven, we'll see how they cross. But they're not contradictory. The one thing we do understand is by the doctrine of election is that it does not mean what the first and the second point of five-point Calvinism teaches under the acronym TULIP. T, total depravity. Okay? U, unconditional election. The first point is an erroneous definition of the total depravity of man. Teaching man is so dead that he cannot respond to the gospel. So God has to make him alive. Then he has faith to believe and be born again. That's absolutely unbiblical. This teaching is the teaching of inability, they say. And it's presented as a biblical truth. But it cannot be found 
in the scriptures, not one verse substantiated. The prefix total is not found anywhere in the scriptures. Nowhere. Where do you get it from? People believe it. People repeat it like parrots. It's indoctrination, not teaching. It's added. The scripture teaches we are dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, but in no way does it mean that spiritually dead people cannot respond to the gospel. Because God has chosen the proclamation of the gospel and the Holy Spirit illuminates you and convicts you of your sin and gives you a chance to respond to God's initiation. He says, you're lost, you're dead, I died for you, I can forgive you. And you get to choose. God will not force you to go to heaven contrary to Calvinism. See, Calvinism says that God predestined, okay, here we are. Here's Calvinism, okay? This left-hand side, you guys are going to heaven. You guys are going to hell. And there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot go to hell if you want to, and you cannot go to heaven if you want to. Is that the God of the Bible? That's what they teach. Pretty crazy, isn't it? Calvinism teaches two births, which is foreign to the scriptures. They say God has to make you alive so you can believe and be born again. So, makes you alive, that's one birth. You believe, then you repent, that's two births. My Bible says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. My Bible says, faith comes first, second regeneration. They've got it backwards. You're going to believe a PhD or the Word of God? Who are you going to believe? I'll go with Jesus. The second point equally is wrong. It reinforces the first point by teaching unconditional election that God elected some to be saved while electing the remainder of humanity to be damned without ever giving them a chance of salvation. Now, if God didn't give you a chance of salvation, then He can't be just. Right? Simple. How can he judge you if he never gives you a chance? Then he's responsible for your sin, right? Because when you believe in predestination, which I'll deal with tonight, then you believe that everything, can, nothing can be altered. So therefore you have to conclude that everybody who murders, everybody who rapes somebody, everybody who steals, God predestined that. Wow. Blaming God for all that? And every one of them, white, R.C. Sproul, all their theologians say, God predestined the fall of Adam. Are you kidding me? Blasphemous. Again, the prefix unconditional is added. It's not found in the Bible. Yet the person is condemned by God for failing to respond and believe, yet was elected by God not to respond. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> So you tell your kid, go mow the lawn, and you tie him up in a chair with a chain. Then you come back from your trip three days later and say, why don't you mow the lawn? And you whip him for it. Is that just? When you're the one that tied him to the chair? Is that the God of your Bible? Wow. R.C. Sproul, the golden calf of Calvinism, says this, quote, 
A carnal point of Reformed theology. By the way, Reformed theology, same animal, Calvinism. Reformed theology, Calvinism. A carnal point of Reformed theology is the maxim. Here it is, ready? Quotes. Regeneration precedes faith. You get an F in the subject of the Bible, R.C. Sproul. My Bible says faith comes first, then regeneration. Am I going to choose him or choose the Bible? Wow. What's the plumb line? The Bible. Their analogy of equating spiritual death to physical death is not an equal parallel. They say, you're like a cadaver. If you go to a morgue and you tell, you tell a joke to the cadaver there, they're not going to respond, right? You're just like that. No, it isn't. Not what the Bible teaches. They say that. The Apostle Paul tells, told the Athenians this in Acts 17, 30, who were non-believers. Listen, he says, um, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. How can God command all to repent if he predestines some not to repent? Duh. It's a contradiction. The doctrine of election is biblical. The way the Bible teaches it. The doctrine of election is pre and predestination focus on the divine side of salvation. He being the initiator through the proclamation of the gospel. You and I are the responders of free will. The only way love can be proven to be genuine is if it's voluntary. I've done many weddings in 40-some years. I've never seen a bride dragged up. God invites you to be his bride. He doesn't force you to be his bride. If he forced you, he couldn't be loving. He couldn't be good. He couldn't be fair. He couldn't be just. He couldn't be holy. He would be the worst person in all eternity. Wow. The two doctrines are not in contradiction to each other, free will and divine initiation. God always initiates, we respond. The two doctrines are scriptural, but we cannot understand them to their, we just, with logic and rationale to the full end. We don't have omniscience. We don't have foreknowledge. He does. If we had omniscience, we know everything. We couldn't learn anything. We wouldn't need to. If we had foreknowledge, we, we would know what happened before it happens. Only God has that. So for him, it's no problem. Let's take it a step further. Let me illustrate it this way. Judas Iscariot, right? He betrayed Jesus Christ, right? Okay, let's take the Calvinistic stand. Okay, so God predestined Judas Iscariot to betray his son. All right? If you believe that, then that means he predestined him to do the evil that he did. And if God predestined him to do the evil, how could God be holy and just to condemn him and judge him for the evil that he made him to do? It's crazy. God knows what's going to happen, so he can tell it before it happens. He predestines an act or an event or something, but he doesn't force the person to do the evil. He only knows the evil the person will do, so he can tell it. It's no big deal. Now I can handle a God like that. It's simple. So the two doctrines are scripture, but we cannot understand them again to its full end. God chose us. He, we did not choose him to an extent. He initiated Election is very scriptural. Election is based on God's foreknowledge. He initiates, we respond. So the one who did the choosing was God. Okay? 
but it doesn't contradict our free will. Notice the second point. The time of the choosing there in verse 4. Paul revealed that God's sovereign uh, choosing was before creation prior to the time as we know it, chronological time, before the foundation of the world. The particular time here before the creation um, indicates God being omniscient, all-knowing. He knows all things, past, present, and future. He cannot learn anything, okay? God never said to Gabriel, I didn't know he was going to do that. Never. The word for knowledge is a noun. It's not a verb. So it is not causative, but rather describing a thing. God having foreknowledge the result of his omniscience knows all things beforehand, so nothing surprises him or catches him unawares. All things are open and naked to him. He knows the motive of our hearts. The inception of creation is stated to be in the beginning, referring to the framework of creation. Marking out creation as a starting point. This point marks the introduction of time as you and I know it. Chronological time. Past, present, future. The implication being that time as we know it did not exist in this fashion prior to creation. Chronological time came out of eternity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Chronological time. Time itself, being temporal, was created and came to be at a set point at its introduction. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1. The Gospel of John opens with the words, as you know, in the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus. But the article is not present there in John 1.1 for the word beginning. Therefore, the declaration indicates going back earlier than the first verse of Genesis to timeless eternity for time. In the beginning, before chronological time, Jesus existed. He's eternal. All right? So out of eternity came chronological time. Follow with me. Chronological time, Jesus comes back, sets up the kingdom, thousand years, white throne judgment, new heaven, new earth, we enter eternity. Out of eternity came time, time goes back into eternity. Best way to describe eternity is an eternal present. No past, no future. It just is. Now, notice Paul referring to timeless eternity prior to the inception of time as we know it implies that time will one day come to an end then. You cannot have a starting point without an ending point any more than you can have a starting time without an ending time. Both are necessary. The nature of time, as man knows it, is temporal. Time is running down, forward, wasting away. The three dimensions, past, present, and future. The most valuable thing that you and I possess is not money, it's not a car, it's not a house, it's time. Just yesterday I was 18. Time. You wreck your car, you get a new one. Your house burns down, you get another one. Time, this hour you're spending here, you're never going to get back again. This hour you're spending is well invested. This hour will help you for the rest of your life, spiritually. 
time is the most valuable thing. Notice Paul is referring to eternity prior to the beginning of time, as we said. It can only lead us to one conclusion by way of deduction. If time was introduced at a set time, if time is temporal, if time is winding down forward towards an ending point, then what existed before time as we know it has to be eternity. Because it didn't exist before this. That which by nature is infinite, that which has no end, that which has no bounds or limitations or temporalness. When many of you die and I die, we'll be instantly present with the Lord in an eternal domain. One day you may read, Xavier Reese died, don't believe it, I moved. From the temporal to the eternal. I will be more alive then than ever before. Therefore, from the very beginning, God chose us, notice he says, before the foundation of the world, revealing to man that after this period of infinite time or finite time is over, eternity awaits you and I. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, eternity awaits you too, but in hell. I don't say this with the smack of the lips. I'm warning you. If you're not born again, you will never enter the kingdom of God. If you do not recognize that Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life, and that in Him is the only way to be forgiven, and if you don't turn from your sins, you will perish. It's not my message. It's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we plead with you. You're out there hearing the radio, the internet. God loves you. He died for you. You don't have to go to hell. You can if you want to. You don't have to. You will determine where you spend eternity. Heaven or hell. Not God. You can't blame God. You're hearing the gospel right now. That means that God knows all along that he would create the world and man. And also that all would be ruined by man, Adam. And therefore he made this plan of redemption through salvation history. That you and I, as we hear the gospel and we repent from our sins, we respond to him, we can spend eternity with him. What a loving God. I wouldn't let me in if I was God, the heaven. And you wouldn't let you in either because you know you. Right? Anybody here think they're worthy of heaven? Stand up so we can have a good laugh. Not one of us. Not one of us. God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Second Peter 3, 9. And this is what's missing in our nation, ladies and gentlemen. This is what's missing in our pulpits in America. The gospel's not being proclaimed. People are being entertained being corrupted and distorting the gospel. People are not being pointed to Jesus Christ. They're being pointed to, to prosperity, to feeling good and uh, mixing all this stuff and everything else. I say this with a broken heart, not boasting. The gospel should be proclaimed every time over the puppets of America. Our nation would not be in the shape it's in.
the following has been said about election and free will. The whosoever wills are the elect and the whosoever wants are the non-elect. You choose. Not God. God will always initiate. You're always the responder. Always. The use of the term elect, elected, and election in the scripture is interesting. The word appears 27 times in the Bible. The Hebrew word and the Greek word uh, vary in forms. And the term is used for different individuals depending on the context. So that's the utmost important, as I already gave you the illustration uh, uh, already. Context is the most important. The term is used for Israel in the scriptures. The term is used for a lady, meaning that lady or the church in Second John 1.13. The term is used for a church, the church of Corinth, the church of, uh, of Thessalonica, whatever. And it, the term is used for um, Israel and the church as a whole. And the, church, and the word is also used for elect angels in 1 Timothy 5.21, which is interesting. They're called elect angels. Now, think with me if you're a Calvinist. So God elected some to be good angels, and he elected some to be bad angels. So God is the destroyer of his own realm of heaven. <laughs> is that dumb or what? It says Satan was created perfect. From the day he was created, he was beautiful, perfect, until iniquity was found. Listen, in him. That means angels have a free will, just like man. Except angels cannot be saved or redeemed or forgiven. Only man. Why? Because you and I are creating the image and likeness of God. Angels are ministering spirits of the earth of salvation. Is that clear? Wow, it's God good to us. Examining all the places the terms appear, not once is that term ever used to indicate a select group who alone have been predestinated to be saved. Never, not one place. Now, out of context, yes. In context, no way. Listen to Dr. Ironside. He declared this. Nowhere in the Bible are people ever predestinated to go to hell. And nowhere in the, uh, are people simply predestinated to go to heaven. Look it up and see. Predestination is always to some special place of blessing. The word elect appears four times in the Old Testament. One for the Messiah. Three for Israel. Isaiah 42.1, 45.4, 65, 65.9, and 65.22. The word appears in the New Testament as elected, 17 times. Election, 6 times. Elects, plural, 3 times. Elected, 1 time. When you sift through the 27 passages, one is left with only 5 pertaining to the general subject of election. In Romans 9, 11, 11, 5, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, 1 Peter 1, 2, 2 Peter 1, 10. Out of the 27, only five. All five have to do with election. Listen, to service and blessing, not salvation. Context, context, context. 
Listen to Marvin R. Vincent, an authority of biblical language, explains the following, quote, and he gives the word for elect or election, is used of God's selection of men or agencies for special missions or attainments. Nowhere in the New Testament is there any warrant for the revolution doctrine that God predestined a definite number of mankind to eternal life and the rest to eternal destruction. End of quote. Wow. The elect of Calvinism is unconditionally elected without any anything on their part. And since there is no election or predestination stated in the Bible by the word decree, they say it is in the hidden mystery of God's will. So you just make this stuff up. And you just claim sovereignty. Really? Do I look stupid? Hmm. The word mystery, as you know in the New Testament, the word mysterion comes from the word to shut the mouth. It's never used in the New Testament to mean something hidden. In fact, it's just the opposite. Something previously hidden in the Old Testament now made known in the New. So it's a contradiction of what they're teaching to justify their dogma, their propaganda, their deception. And people swallow it hook, line, and sinker. Wow. The third chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith is entitled, Of God's Eternal Decree. Listen. Calvinists, Bushwell, and Hodge, they're Calvinists, they state that the decrees of God may be regarded as one complex decree, including all things. Well, it sounds smart. sounds mystical. But it's not biblical. Where do you get that? Might as well pull a rabbit out of a hat. The word decree occurs 49 times in 48 verses. The word decreed, with a D, five times in five verses. The word decrees, plural, occurs two times in many verses, as, as many verses. And yet, out of the 46 times the word decree is used, only eight times is it connected, listen, to God. Only eight times. The decrees concern, that I just mentioned, they concern the rain, the sea, Jesus Christ, the heavens, the consumption, the sand, and Nebuchadnezzar. Where are you getting your predestination? As a decree. Out of these seven passages, none is said to be eternal. None involves election or predestination. It's a figment of your imagination. Just as much as a Palestinian nation. There has never been a Palestinian nation. There's never been a Palestinian people. The land that was given to Abraham was the land of Canaan. The Romans salted the land and kicked out the Jews and named the land Palestinia. As Bitterness against the Jew, insulting them for the Philistines, their natural enemies. Not one Arab would ever consider himself a Palestinian before 1955. You know there were no borders, right? 
Every Arab would consider a Palestinian the few Jews that remained in the land of renamed Palestinian by Rome. So where's the history of the Palestinian nation? It's fake news. It's fake history. It's never existed. Propaganda. The land of Canaan. The land of Israel. Wow. People don't think. They just keep repeating the same lie. Inside the church as well as outside. God always gives reason for saving some and damning others. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come, let's reason together, though your sins be red as crimson, may be white as snow. He invites you. Now, if he predestined you, why invite you? Well, if you really think about it, if you believe in predestination and election, we'll deal with predestination tonight more. If you believe in, in Calvinism, then you don't believe in you, you can't believe in evangelism. You certainly can't believe in missions because everything's done, right? God's already chosen. God's already rejected. So why preach? Why go missions? Wow. God tells Israel that he punishes her for her wickedness in Deuteronomy 28, 20. If they were elected to damnation, then they have to be elected for the wickedness that they do based on God's decrees. Yet he punishes them for what he made them to do then. That would make God unjust, right? You get out of church and you tell your kid, pick up that rock and break that window. No, Dad, pick it up and break it. And then you grab him you take him up to, hey, call the cops. He did it. Would that make you good, holy and just? That's the God of the Calvinist. Is that your God? Not mine. Wow. God told Jeremiah... Israel had forsaken him in Jeremiah 9.13. If they were unconditionally elected, how could they forsake the law? If they have no free will to respond to the law. It's a contradiction. The unloving depiction of God by Calvinism is insulting to God in the scriptures, attributing evil to God, than merely saying it's, that he's just because he's sovereign. So they, always use it. they misdefine the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty, again, is God does as he wills, when he wills, to who he wills, as often as he wills, but he never violates your will. Otherwise, he would be unjust. He would be unfair. He would be unholy, right? Simple. It's real simple. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe has not life, but the wrath of God abides in him. John 3.36. That's a choice. John 3.16. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish have everlasting life. Listen to what the Calvinists do. Ready? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that not whosoever, the elect, they change it. The elect. What? No, he died for the whole world. They're dishonest. They're slaves to their dogma of deception. Wow. It says whoever believes, not unconditionally elected. The two doctrines of divine election and man's free will are not in contradiction, but in fact are complementary truths of the Bible. The elect are constituted not by absolute decrees, but by acceptance 
of the conditions of God's call through the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. Again, we just cannot understand them alone on logic and reason. Yet, our faith is reasonable, but it's not based on reason alone. Very important. And so, the time of the choosing was before the foundation of the world. The third and last point, notice the purpose of the choosing. If God chose you, there's a reason, there's purpose behind it, right? Paul associated those chosen by the Father with his holiness, that we should be holy. The holiness of God is a moral attribute and is communicable, able to be imparted to us, his creation. There are certain attributes of God that are not communicable. His omniscience, all-knowing, he doesn't give that to us. But he's holy, and he can make us live holy, right? So there are certain attributes that are communicated to us, giving us the ability but there's other things that he alone possesses, okay? Since God is morally pure in perfection, then we must conclude that God has to be separated from sinful man. Sin keeps you from God. Before you were born again, you might have said you knew God, but you didn't know God, neither did I, okay? Once you're born again, now you know God, and you don't live the way you used to because the Holy Spirit lives in you, and you have understanding, now, you're not perfect, but you don't practice sin as a lifestyle anymore, right? There's a big difference. These are the two basic and most common ways the word holy and holiness are used in the Old and the New Testament. The perfection of God's holiness and the separation or sanctification and consecration of you and I to him. Because he has saved us, he has put us aside. You get the same word for holiness, hagios, for saint, Sanctify, sanctification, same root word. Okay? Holiness is the attribute most glorious of God. It's called the attributes of attributes. The word holy is found 45 times in Exodus, 77 times in Leviticus, 32 times in Numbers, and 20 times in Deuteronomy. That's just the first four books. Wow. Wow. He is called the Holy One of Israel 30 times in Isaiah and only 20 times in the rest of the Old Testament. The Holy One of Israel. Notice Paul revealed that the Father chose us in Christ with a purpose. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The design of election is for purification. Sinners are sinful by nature due to the fall. You know the problem with your kids? They're your kids. You got a sinful dad and a sinful mom. Two sinners produce what? Another rotten sinner. They have to be born again also. We're all sinners. Yet fallen man has a potential for doing good. So, because we're creating the image and likeness of God, we have a potential to do good. Even as a non-believer, you did some good. But darkness attracts us. Our bent is towards evil. Once we're born again, we still have a potential for evil. But we have to choose to walk with God, right? When we blow, we have to confess and get right with God. It's simple. Sinners saved have the potential for holiness due to God's intervention. Again, the word holiness, set apart, set aside. 
God saves us, sanctifies us. The instant a person is saved, their sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and you are regenerated. Faith comes first, regeneration comes second. I don't care what's happened in your life, he forgives you for every sin. Now other people may not forgive you. Other people may throw in your face. You may even try to condemn yourself or Satan. But God says that he places your sins in the deepest ocean behind his back. Cast them as far as east as the west. So you're going to believe you, others, Satan, or God? It's up to you. The goal for saved sinners is also to be without blame before Jesus' in outward conduct resulting by the choice that we've made towards God as we repented from our sins. The phrase without blame here means without rebuke or faultless. It's in Ephesians, Colossians, Hebrews, Peter, and many others. It doesn't mean that you're sinless. It means that you are sanctified, set apart, and now you can live the life that's pleasing to God by His grace as you trust the Word, the Holy Spirit, and your obedience to Him. Simple. The idea is blame or fault acquired by the word in the Septuagint, the, the, uh, the Greek translation for the priest and the sacrifice. That's how it's used. So um, God has totally made us justified and he presents us faultless based on what Jesus did for me, not what I did myself. I trusted that God made Jesus sin for me. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God, uh, God made him to be sin for me who knew no sin that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. God's wrath fell upon Jesus. He died in my place. He paid my sin. He became literal sin. And now if I believe that, God makes me justified in Christ Jesus and he sees me as his son. Are you clear on that? That's called biblical faith. I believe what the Bible says. It's simple. The passion of a saved sinner is to be before Jesus, motivated by his love. Notice the word love, there's agape. God's divine love, it appears ten times in the other form, agapao, nine times in the letter. Um, it's different from our love. You know, we love our dog, we love our hamburger, and we love our wife. I hope there's a difference. <laughs> English is real limited, okay? You have the sexual love, eros, that can be manipulated and it's very selfish, you have the emotional love, phileo, and that gets used, manipulated with people, especially with women. And then you have the agape love of God. That agape love will allow those other loves to blossom. But if you don't live in agape love, you will abuse and misuse and take advantage of those other loves. Because we are bad news. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. Jeremiah 17:9. Even as a saint, even as a believer... If I do not walk in the Spirit, I will walk in the flesh. It's A and B. There's no C. It's a choice you and I make. Now, let me read what Pastor Chuck... You know, Pastor Chuck is dead, right? Okay? A lot of things have changed in the Calvary chapels, okay? There's big division. There's weird stuff going on. Many of them got into Calvinism, too. Let me tell you what Pastor Chuck says in the book that he wrote about the distinctions of Calvary Chapel. I will continue to teach just like Pastor Chuck did. And when I die, if you change it, I'll come back and get you. Okay? 
I'm going to quote him. Listen carefully. The late founder and leader of Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith's uh, words are important. Quote, we neither are five-point Calvinists nor are we Armenian. We do believe in the security of the believer. We don't believe that you can, listen carefully, that you can lose your salvation because you lost your temper or told a lie and as a result need to go forward next Sunday night or repent and get resaved. We believe in the security of the believer, but we also believe in the perseverance of the saints. Now watch. We don't believe that because you are a saint, you will necessarily persevere. But that you need to persevere because you are a saint. Then he quotes the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. If there is no possibility of you not abiding, why would Jesus impure it? Listen to what Jesus says. And he quotes John fifteen six through 7 Jesus again said, he says here, if you continue in my words, he's talking to his 12 apostles, then you are my disciples indeed, John eight thirty one. Then he quotes Jesus again, if anyone does not abide in me, he has cast out anyone, not the palm tree, if anyone, who's he talking to? The 12 apostles. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them in the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, talking to the dirty dozen, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. John fifteen six through 7 Now listen, he, the last quote he used of Jesus there. Jesus himself brought up the possibility of a person not abiding in him. So we seek to take a balanced position rather than getting one on one side or pressing the five points of Calvinism. This is what Calvary Chapel believes. But better than that, this is what the Bible teaches. All right? The plumb line is always the Word of God. Always. Holiness is commanded for the believer. First Peter 1.16 Be holy for I am holy. You have the capacity. You as a father and mother never ask your son or daughter to do something that they can't do, right? You don't tell your three-year-old to go on the lawn, right? You ask your 12 or 13-year-old because you know they can. God, God enables you. If he enables you, he'll ask you to do things. He never asks you unless he enables you. Holiness is the will of God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel of sanctification and honor. First Thessalonians 4.3 Before we live like pigs, hogs, did what we wanted. No conviction. Now you're born again. Now you know what's wrong. Sin separates you from God. You've got to get right with God. Simple. Holiness makes us one with God. His holiness keeps us, John 17, 11. Holiness is the evidence that I believe that he's coming and desire to be with him, 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure in verse 4. Paul puts it this way. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body, your inferior trinity. I never introduced, hey, this is Xavier's soul, body, and spirit. No. But you're an inferior trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, body, soul, spirit. Okay? When I die, my body goes to the grave. My spirit goes before God. And my whole personality, the will, the soul, intellect, emotion, and will, it's there but in a perfect state. Inferior trinity. 
He'll preserve it completely and be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Jesus is the holy mediator, the sanctifier's church, the high priest. No one else. It's not your pastor. It's not the elders. It's Jesus Christ. Jude puts it this way. Not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of the, his glory and with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Jude is only one chapter, verse 24, 25. So we don't depend on ourselves, but we do have a free will, right? When you as a parent, your child does something, and you say, why'd you do that? Why? Because you know, you know that he has a free will. He's responsible, right? No one forced him to do it, right? And if, if someone forced him to do it, he let them force him. He's still responsible, right? Let's give God a break, ladies and gentlemen. He calls me, he enables me. He is faithful. I'm not worried about God being unfaithful. I'm worried about me. Are we clear on that? The threefold division of the letter of Ephesians is based on love, ladies and gentlemen. You know why? Because love is the purest motivation for anything you do. That's it. If it's lust that moves you, it'll go away. You'll find a new one. Trade her in a new model. If it's emotions, somewhere along the line, you're going to bang heads. But if agape love is your motivation for life, you got the greatest incentive for holiness and the purest. So the epistle here is divided by love. Three divisions. The wealth of the believer by the agape love of God. Chapter 1, 2, and 3. The walk of the believer in the love of God. Chapter 4 to chapter 6, verse 9. And the warfare of the believer through the love of God in chapter 6, 10 through 14. The wealth, the walk, and the warfare. It's all based on God's love. Love never fails. Believes all things, holds all things, it never fails. Agape. Not eros, not phileo. God's agape love. What is ruling your life? If it's not God's love, your intellect means nothing. All the scriptures you know mean nothing. All the work you do means nothing. It's God's love. So you and I need to grow spiritually, develop, and mature. When you have a baby, you bring them home, you strip them, and you count the toes. You look at the hands and everything, the head, everything's in proportion. And in the following months and years, you're looking for growth in proportion. You're looking for development, and you're looking for maturity at every stage of their life. The same thing spiritually. Are you 10 years old in the Lord? Then act 10 years old. Are you 20? Have you developed, grown, and matured? There's some 20-year-old Christians that are still wetting their pants and scraping their knees. Right? 
God wants us to grow up in Christ Jesus. And so the purpose of the choosing is to be transformed. Here's the proclamation of election marked by these three truths. The one who did the choosing was God. The time of the choosing was before the foundation of the world. And the purpose of the choosing is to be transformed. Wow. Who can argue against this? Is God good or is he good? That's why everybody's on their face in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation and all the crowns that are defeated Jesus Christ because he's so good. Ladies and gentlemen, we deserve hell. He has given us the option of going to heaven. Wow. Lord, thank you for your love and goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray, Lord, you deal with our hearts and we pray if there's anyone, Lord, just listening, that you would deal with their hearts and they allow... Allow them to understand your love, your grace. And they call on your name and you save them, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you're over the internet, if you're out there in the radio, somewhere in the world, maybe you're in Russia, maybe you're in Switzerland, maybe you're in France, wherever you're at, Jesus died for your sins, he rose from the dead, and you can call on his name. He will save you, he'll forgive you, and he will transform your life if you call upon him right now. This is your prayer to him. It's called repentance. And he's going to save you right now. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.